Welcome to the Ward Zero podcast, covering the civic issues you most want to talk about. You are now entering Ward Zero. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 2 of the Ward Zero podcast. My name is Asmahan Razavi, and as ever, I'm joined by Darren Krauss and Jeremy Zhao. In the spirit of reconciliation, I want to acknowledge that we do record this podcast, live, work, and play on the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Sutina, the Stony Nakoda Nations, Métis Nation Region, region 3, and all people who make their homes in the Treaty 7 region of Southern Alberta. We actually have a lot of catching up to do. I don't think we've recorded an episode and since uh, February of this year. We were a little busy. I was working on the provincial election, and uh, we'll say more about that later. And Darren and Jeremy were really busy too. So it was kind of hard for the three of us to get together. But there's been so much going on on council. Uh, I know a lot of people have a lot of takes about things like housing, things like the arena, and upcoming initiatives in, in the fall. So we're going to talk about a lot of that. But first, we're going to go into some hot takes. And, uh, well, at least one hot take. And Darren, I think you have one that's pretty relevant to uh, Livewire. Yeah, it's relevant to Livewire, but frankly, it's relevant to all Canadian media. And that's this, uh, the Bill C-18 and everything that's happened since then. Uh, Obviously, Bill C-18, Coles Notes version here, basically big tech providers who are using Canadian content uh, or or having it on their, their systems, their platforms, they're being asked to pay for that news. Don't love the bill. Uh, I think it's a really, really wrong way to go about it. Uh, but that's beside the point. But let's talk about the impact first. The impact could be really substantial, particularly for organizations like mine, where probably 65 to 70% of the traffic that we get is generated by Google searches. Uh, and people will be like, well, change your search engine or or change the search engine that you use. And that is easier said than done, because I would say the vast majority of the population uses Google. Uh, every, you think every time you want a piece of news on something or a piece of information, what are you doing? You're tapping it into Google. Right. And that's where where a lot of the traffic comes from. Really, this is a, a question of revenue for local news providers. And and I did post a little bit of a a take to Twitter on this. And really the bigger concern here is most news organizations have what we call programmatic ads. And those programmatic ads are just your little box with Google AdSense, that's Google's advertising platform. Uh, And those boxes are littered throughout the the pages of any website. And so the issue is, is that if I were to sell those little boxes to Joe's Plumbing Hut here in Calgary, I would charge them a rate equivalent to $10 per thousand. And when you say per thousand, that's the number of impressions, like per 1000 impressions, I would get $10. So a typical ad for me in the course of a month gets about, I don't know, 80 to 100,000 impressions. So that could be worth to me $1,000. But Google comes along as a clearinghouse for impressions. And they aggregate all of those impressions on the Calgary Herald, on CTV, on Global, on Livewire, on whatever organization 
is operating AdSense and they sell that same ad space to people for $3 cost per thousand. And then they only pay a fraction of that to a provider. Let me give you a quick example here. Yesterday, we probably, well, we logged just under 10,000 views. We made from that. So let, usually it's a multiplier of between two and three impressions. And uh, so roughly, I would say about 30,000 impressions. We made $4.54 from Google yesterday. So they are making tons more money because of the impressions that they're getting from, from our site. Uh, they're making tons more money than they're actually paying out to us. So we're delivering them possibly up to 30,000 potential people who are looking at the ads and they're charging for the ads, but we're getting pennies for it. And to me, that's the real issue here is, is not in Google using our news because we want them to use our news. We want them to drive traffic to our sites. But the real issue here is in how much they're actually paying folks like myself or, or others when it comes to using that ad space. So that's the real challenge here. And as I said, the impact could be devastating, not only because of this AdSense, which I mean, last month we made 125 bucks from Google, that's it. And we probably delivered for them, I'm gonna say somewhere in the neighborhood of about 300,000 uh, 300, impressions. But the issue is, when they throttle our traffic like that, uh, we can't go to market and get those native ads at $10 cost per thousand because we just don't have the traffic to back it up anymore. So I can't go to a local Joe's plumbing hut and say, hey, we're getting 100,000 views this month because now Google no longer indexes us. So now we're back down to 30,000 views per month, which is what we were getting in our first months of operation five years ago. That's where the big challenge is, is it's no longer attractive to Joe's plumbing hut to come and purchase an ad and spend three, $400 with us because they're just not going to get the response that's needed. And so it's just another in a long line of hits that Canadian media is, is taking. And I haven't even got into the part about why this post-media merger is happening or why this Bell media cuts are happening, uh, which is like a whole nother set of circumstances uh, that's really rattling Canadian media. Sorry, it's supposed to be a hot take, which is like one line. And that was like half the show. All right, everybody, have a nice yeah. week. I think it's important, Darren, because, you know, we've experienced such a lack of coverage of local issues. And if there weren't organizations like Livewire to come in and, and sort of fill that gap and report on what's going on in council or find those like local stories. And um, I think a lot of us would just be so disconnected with what's going on in the city. So for you, for Livewire, what would... Is there is there an ask you have of the federal government? In, in a perfect world, I don't want the government to intervene at all. But if the government is going to intervene, they cannot do it by continuing to prop up post-media, 
by continuing to prop up Torstar, by continuing to prop up Bell or Chorus. They just can't do it. There are so many different independent news organizations in Canada. And could you imagine if you took the $600 million that went to these organizations just a few years back and you gave each of the smaller organizations a million dollars or two million dollars like if i had a million dollars first of all i could make that million dollars last me just for 10 years and i could probably fund two or three more reporters in my newsroom and the reason that is is because we don't have we don't have debt payments. We don't have a massive infrastructure that we need to pay for. We don't have buildings. We don't have all of these things that the bigger organizations that have built up all of this bloat, this bureaucracy that have built up over time that they have to pay for. We can actually put it to use by doing actual journalism and funding reporters. And we can actually get to where we want to be instead of thinking that, oh gosh, the only way to save journalism is to make sure that the post medias and the bell medias and the and the tour star organizations survive. And that's just that's such a 1970s, 1980s way of looking at things. Okay. Well, we heard it here. Federal government maybe maybe take a listen to local reporters. Okay, so we're gonna go into before we get into our, our meteor uh, segments of this of the show, we're gonna get into some quick hits. And uh, Darren, I'm going to turn it over to you again. Yes, <laughs> it's my I'm I'm back with a vengeance. I'm monopolizing the first part of the show, but this will be quick. Uh, Canada Day weekend. We are recording on on July second. We we don't need to make any bones about uh, about dating ourselves because we've been away for a bit. Uh, Canada Day weekend. A lot of great events. Um, of course, it was tied to some truth and reconciliation aspects, but also the Chinese Exclusion Act, which uh, was 100 years. Uh, they marked 100 years since the Chinese Exclusion Act, um, and there were events tied to that here in Calgary as well. The fireworks did go ahead based on public feedback after the city was making that decision. The fireworks did go ahead. This week, residential parking permits comes up. Don't even get me started on this idea of people believing they own the space in front of their house. And I should say that the Calgary Stampede is coming up. We've got sneak a peek on Thursday and the parade on Friday. I'm excited. I'm excited. I got a new pair of cowboy boots. So uh, <laughs> I usually have red cowboy boots, everyone, but I bought a white pair this year, um, which is very risky, but I'm very excited about it. We're going to talk about housing first, and housing is something that I think we are all seeing more and more news stories come out on. I'll tell you that during the campaign, I heard a lot about rent and affordability, seniors who were feeling uh, priced out of the buildings that they are living in. Uh, I read an article a few days ago about how if you have a fixed mortgage and uh, it's it's coming up to to renewal, you might be facing a in the next year a 20 to 25% increase. So housing, it's something that affects all of us in one way or another. So that being said, only a few weeks ago, I guess, let me just take a look, June 6th, there was a vote that came to council, uh, a task force of housing experts brought forward recommendations on some solutions that would improve housing for Calgarians. 
There were six set recommendations brought forward by these experts. And to the shock of most Calgarians, I think, at least based on the online reaction I saw, the recommendations put forward were lost in a seven to eight vote during Tuesday's regular council meeting. As I understand it, and Darren, you can weigh in here, but as I understand it, the real argument was over a city-initiated rezoning that would have enabled greater density in Calgary communities. After the vote failed, sort of reflecting uh, why it failed, Councillor Walcott, uh, I think in a what I what I think is one of the more candid things I've ever heard him say, uh, essentially said something like, "It means that." Council made a decision uh, that the challenge of housing affordability and the challenge of dealing with this crisis, it's too much if it requires us to live beside a townhouse. The mayor was disappointed in the outcome of the vote. Those who, uh, just to say who, uh, you know, to give some clarity on who voted against it, it was Councillor, uh, Councillors McLean, Sharp, Chabot, Chu, Wyness, and Putmans. Who am I missing there? Councillor Wong and Councillor Peter DeMong. Sorry, I found that. So there was a lot of public outrage. Then uh, I know Councillor Wong, who is my counselor, actually, was kind of like engaging with people on Twitter back and forth. And then the next day, uh, there was a lot of discussion about how they should come back to council, basically like a little bit of a mess. And I think the added context here is that just before the provincial election, or maybe it was the day of the provincial election, that whole time is a blur for me. Yeah, uh, council voted in support of the arena. And so some of the chatter I saw was, okay, well, you know, we're voting for an arena, but we are not voting to support affordable housing. So lots going on there. Uh, Darren, what was it like in council as this was happening? I imagine this was a really tense vote. Yeah, it was interesting. Uh, there was a lot of miscommunication, misinformation, just from an outsider's perspective and an observer. I think that it was delivered in a really, really poor way. It was kind of just thrown out there on the table. The, the administration group or the Housing Affordability Task Force group could have more systematically put in place a, okay, here's what we can do now with no additional council uh, re requirements, no, no need for public engagement. These are the things that we can do administratively. Here are some things that we could do with council approval and also with further public engagement. And here are things that we need to do, but this will require full-on public engagement. This will require this. That was not done. It was basically, here's our report, take it or leave it. And I think that's ultimately, and I know we're going to get into this, Esmahan, that's ultimately where things maybe broke down was in the fact that there was no breaking this apart. These were the recommendations. The recommendations needed to be approved wholly, I, I guess is the best way to put it. But I think, you know, you hit the nail on the head. It's the citywide rezoning that really was the linchpin here. I guess what I'll say on that, and again, this is where I think councillors have a responsibility to not buy into that trope of blanket rezoning. It seems like that. However, the reality is we already have blanket rezoning in a sense, because at any point in time, anyone, any citizen in Calgary who owns a property can come and they can apply for a land use change and get RCG, get R uh, HGO, because that's what our city policy documents say. 
And so this was essentially eliminating that bureaucratic step that so many people have to go through in order to get that land use change. This this would have eliminated that step. So it would have made everything already RCG. Also, they wouldn't like it doesn't mean that single family homes can't be built on those RCG properties. And that's another thing that was never said. The side that is that is against this is really kind of feeding and to a certain degree fueling this misinformation because we we already have this. We already have the ability to do this. It's just a matter of eliminating a, a step. And I posed this question to a couple of counselors because earlier they had eliminated the admin requirement to produce business cases for sprawl. Why did they do that? They did it so that they could make it, they could make the process more streamlined to have business approvals come forward to city admin, they could approve them, and then they would get funding, yay or nay, at, at city council. So the citywide rezoning thing, like the other aspect of this before I shut up, is that all of this and the housing affordability task force admin the mayor had all said all of this stuff when it's approved requires further public engagement but that that got lost that got lost in the whole conversation anytime you make changes to the land use bylaw it must have public engagement. They couldn't just blanket, do it. Okay, it's done. That's against the law. So they couldn't have just done this without more public engagement. And so all of the good work that the Housing Affordability Task Force did got lost because of this, this politicized, polarized, red meat talking debate that everybody got into. And that in essence, is the reason why we can't move this housing affordability ball forward. I just found a it hilarious. It got voted down, I believe it was the day that the, uh, the Bank of Canada decided to uh, raise the interest rate another quarter percentage. It was just that that big disconnect. And I just laughed. I also laughed because it, it just seems like city council isn't paying attention to what other cities are doing, you know, where you have a Alberta's calling campaign where you're getting record number of people coming into the city because it is still attractive, it is still affordable. But you know, in in BC, the the provincial government has said if if cities aren't doing what they need to do to find more housing or affordable housing, then they will they will actively intervene in Ontario. We see the 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 premier as well, you know, whether you like it or not, take up more areas where it was designated as kind of a green space, you know, um, and, and that is being annexed to build more housing. I just found it hilarious when uh, also when you wrote about the, the, the very thing that they were trying to vote against the first time around, which is that public consultation it's it's like they're two years into their job now and they kind of don't understand, you know, where they're at. I, I, I can't give them the benefit of the doubt anymore in, in saying that they are, they're new to the job anymore. 
right? To have to be able to step back the next day, um, have Counselor Putman's go, hey, you know, this really, this really was a, a huge mess, and we have to to redo the vote. It just speaks to me like as if on the surface level, it seems like they're disconnected from what's happening, which is crazy, weird, like high rent, particularly in the downtown Beltline area. Somebody smarter in the room than I can can explain to me what's going on there. And the fact that the, the Bank of Canada has signaled that they're not going to be pausing still with, with interest rates. It's going to keep creeping up a little bit. And, and we'll also see what happens down in the, the U.S. here. I think it's fascinating just to touch on a few things you said, Jeremy, like it's almost like I think when we used to talk about affordable housing, the only people who we thought that affordable housing impacts were like super young people who don't vote, who were trying to get into the market for the first time or, you know, like renters and no one cared. But now everybody is being impacted by housing one way or another whether that's through rent. And let's not forget the only people who rent are not just like people right out of school. There are a lot of seniors who rent. There are people who rent and almost every single ward of this city, I believe, has like renters. Like that's not an insignificant population. And there are a lot of people who are on fixed mortgage, mortgage rates who are going to be seeing those like, you know, those mortgages up for renewal and who are going to face extreme sticker shock in the next few years. So it's like, it's almost like this council hasn't caught up to the fact that, hey, housing is housing and housing affordability is actually a crisis that is impacting each and every one of us in one way or another. And the reason that I like specifically named the counselors who voted against this is because, and we didn't really get into this, but in a hilarious, to borrow your term, uh, Jeremy, kind of like realignment of political views and, and political causes, one of the biggest proponents, whether you agree with his solution or not, of housing affordability is Pierre Polyev, who has been talking about municipal gatekeepers and the role that they play in, you know, making housing unaffordable to conservative MPs. And then uh, liberal MP George Chahal came out. But first it was, I think, Michelle Rempel who said anything and said that she was disappointed in this council for not recognizing, I don't, I'm sort of paraphrase, paraphrasing here, but, you know, not understanding how important affordable housing is. I think there was another, the other MP was a conservative in Ontario, maybe, the people who voted against this were offside from their traditional allies uh, on the federal, uh, in the federal political space, uh, who recognize that housing is an issue that is impacting all of us. If people can't afford to, uh, you know, to renew their mortgages, if they can't afford to pay their rent, if they are, if they can't afford to enter the housing market, what are they supposed to do? This is a huge crisis, and it it just seemed like. When this vote came up, it just seemed like our city wasn't, didn't understand the magnitude of the crisis we're facing and has no real, I don't know, political will to move us in the direction that we need to go. The one thing I wanted to add is, you know, every time we enter a four year, it used to be three year election cycle, we have these 
critics come up and say, like, if you if you vote a, for a candidate, you know, of a certain persuasion, you're going to get this city where it's all cramped and like dense and and nobody's ever going to have green space, you know, and and this this council is going to reflect, you know, what what Nenshi was trying to push through, blah, blah, blah. You can see here once they actually start voting, once you get into the the, the, the some of the topics, they kind of go back to the default and the default is let's not let's not push that uh, aggressive quote unquote aggressive agenda of housing or or of density in the city. So uh, I just wanted to reflect on that to say, however we thought you know the council makeup would look like after an election. When it comes to voting time, you can you can clearly see that it's a lot harder for for you know certain group third party groups to say oh this is what it's going to be like. I've done a lot of community engagement and 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 to try and and see the city in in a in a different you know makeup or or, or in terms of density in terms of land use, but it hasn't happened. And votes like this kind of reflect that it 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 doesn't really move forward in the way you know that I would like to see it. But I guess for people who 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 really want to see the status quo, this is kind of what we see more often than not when it comes to. Um, an ideal of how land use should be, uh, an ideal of how, you know, for example, public transportation should look like versus what actually happens. And, and this was very, very apparent. Nothing changes. There, there's also a real lack of foresight here as well. I wouldn't want to make the massive leap and say that for those Calgarians who can't afford rent or can't afford a home are going to go into a life of crime or whatnot. But what's the number one thing that those in the social agency would say stops that cycle of, you know, addiction, mental health issues, some of the violence and social disorder that goes along with that? And a lot of them would say housing. So it's interestingly, these same counselors who are so pro-transit safety, so pro-public safety in general who have voted against something that could very easily provide an injection to the supply issue here in Calgary, the housing supply issue. Not to mention the fact that just generally speaking, these are also folks who want to keep taxes lower. They want to keep spending in place. And that all lends itself to affordability. And if they continue to allow the housing situation to get out of control, it also makes Calgary less competitive in terms of attracting people here to live, work, and play as the as the meme goes. So I mean, I, th I think there's a real a real lack of foresight and a real lack of understanding in how all of these issues are tied together and they're making decisions based on, for lack of a better way to put it, for ideological reasons that will help them perhaps get elected in 2025. Darren, one of the criticisms I saw um, when this vote came up was that if the mayor would have just split up the recommendations, then at least some of them would have gone through on the initial vote. Do you have any insight into why that wasn't done? Sure. So when I talked with the mayor uh, about that, I will put in a, a shameless plug for the member exclusive podcast 
the mayor and me. Uh, it's where I sit down with the mayor. I asked her straight up, you know, what? why not just split them out? Why not just split out the certain ones? And her rationale was this. We have an outside group, the Housing and Affordability Task Force, made up of housing industry, uh, public members, all of these folks who are experts in the field. This wasn't necessarily admin-driven to have them deliver a set of recommendations and then just cherry pick the ones that worked and the ones that didn't discounts the work that they did to put together a strategy document. And so she didn't feel like it was right for the city, city councillors, again, based on whatever information that they have to come in and say, I like this, I don't like this, I like this, I don't like this. And, you know, just before the show, the sort of analogy that I gave would be like, that's like taking recommendations from the International Association of Firefighters on how Calgary could do firefighting better and say, okay, oh, we like this recommendation. We don't like this. We like this one. Oh, we can't afford this. Oh, oh you know what? My voters don't like this one and kind of piecing it out. You either accept the recommendations and then come up with a plan moving forward or you don't accept the recommendations. And ultimately that's what they did. They didn't accept the recommendations or they didn't accept the report. And, and maybe that's a, that's a really tiny nuance is that they could have just accepted the recommendations as a matter of, or uh, uh, to the corporate record. And then motion arising, whatever, they could have said, okay, we need to establish a plan of attack for how each of these recommendations could be carried out. And I think, I, I think again, that's where it all got lost in some of the debate. So this comes back to council in September. What do we think is going to happen? Given the track record of how the city moves, I, I am not optimistic much is going to ha- happen, you know, e- even, even in more progressive places where they, where you know the the, the provincial government kind of imposes zoning rules, or they they just say, "Hey, you're doing this, whether you like it or not." It's usually been met with a lot of pushback from from city councils. Who I remind the listeners, they are just a creature of the province. They don't have a a constitutional you know right or or, or ability to really really do things. So I'm not optimistic. You know, there were plans put in place decades ago that aren't really being enforced or they don't really care for. They're more like guidelines. And and I also get it, you know, we could we could do the blanket rezoning, but really the province also has to step in to create actual affordable housing. We're not going to solve the issue through the the private sector here. It's got to be, you know, either nonprofits or or some form of government actively intervening, buying land and creating purpose built rentals or or affordable units that, you know, it's not just the regular Calgarian can afford, but it's it's really that lower income bracket that 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 can be sustained. So I'm very pessimistic on this. I have a little bit of faith. And mainly because of the way that it was brought back. It was brought back with that plan. And and perhaps that's what the original document lacked, was a plan of action. And I think that's what we'll see 
when it comes back, I think that it will be done in a very methodical way where the recommendations will be adopted. There will be a plan of attack. Okay, here's how this all needs to be done. Here's the timeline. Here's the stages for each area. And then I think something like that could be approved. And I think that's how they'll move forward. There is one item that's actually coming up. And it, this looks to be just a piece of the uh, Housing Affordability Task Force. And that is basically exempting nonprofits who build affordable housing units will be exempt from the municipal portion of their, their property tax. So I believe that's one small thing that, yes, it needs council approval, but doesn't require a great deal of public engagement. So I think that they will probably look at those smaller ways of doing things, but as a part of a larger plan that admin has sort of laid out in how they will execute the recommendations from the Housing Affordability Task Force. And I think to that end, it makes it a little bit more palatable for many of the councillors who oppose just a, a blanket everything in terms of the Housing Affordability Task Force. I'll also give credit to the city for doing a number of those downtown uh, building conversions over to uh, residential condos. It 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 definitely increases the supply, but it also will change the character and the makeup of downtown, which has been previously recognized as kind of like, okay, everybody goes home after six. There's not much life downtown because nobody lives in that particular space. Now you have a CA, right? You have a, a, a more of more residents actually living there. That is going to be uh, only a benefit uh, in my eyes for, for at least uh, increasing supply and also the life, the life of downtown. Well, I like that. I like ending this segment on a little bit of uh, optimism and, and kudos because uh, it is a pretty, pretty significant crisis we are facing on housing. This feels like it was forever ago, but it really was not. The Alberta election and what it means for Calgary. Darren, I think you're going to tee us off with a clip from Premier Smith. Oh, yes. I was just going to do that just so we could set it up with a rousing election night clip from Danielle Smith. So here it is. Well, my friends, the election is now over. It is time to put partisanship, division, and personal and political attacks in the rearview mirror. It's time to move forward together as all Albertans, no matter who we voted for. So this was a very close election. I guess at the end of the day, the NDP now has more seats than the UCP here in, in Calgary. Calgary was the battleground, as, as many uh, said, uh, whether during the election or, or prior to the election. Uh, and now we're coming into this, you know, new government, and it's almost like half the city voted for one side, the other half voted for the other, basically. I think, I always say, I feel like I'm the worst person to talk about the election because I was so in it. So I'm curious, you two, what do you think uh, this election means for us as a city, and what were you hearing from Calgarians? 
as it was okay, going. Wait, on. wait, wait. Just before we get into it, Esmaha, <laughs> you have some real insight into how close it was. I really do. Esmahan, why is that? Why is that, Darren? Because I actually managed the campaigns for the NDP in Calgary, Glenmore, and Acadia, <laughs> which were and the those, two those were the two closest races. <laughs> yeah, they were on election night. We won Glenmore by 30 and Acadia by seven. And then on the first recount, those counts moved to 42 in Glenmore and 25 in Calgary, Acadia. And then after the judicial recount, uh, which was the final recount, uh, which was actually just a week ago, the final tally in Acadia is 22 votes and the final tally in Calgary Glenmore is 48. So kids, if you ever thought that your vote does not matter, let me tell you, as I watched ballots counted for days at a time, every single vote really, really matters. Get out there and vote. That's all. That's my PSA of the uh, of this episode. Yeah, this was interesting watching maybe as a as a resident now of BC, I think there's still a sense and and my gauge is 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 kind of the the, the demographic of a uh, uh, lawn bowling clubs that I attend. I think there's still a a um I also say curiosity of why Albertans think a certain way so maybe it's not as applicable to to just Calgary it's going you know they've kind of seen how how the UCP have handled certain things like covid like climate change you know BC uh, has a uh, definitely has a certain persuasion in terms of a, a political leanings but but there's also a chunk of you know we'll call it conservative a significant number of conservative voters in in BC but they they're not you know actively you know saying not saying that climate change you know it, it doesn't exist it, it is something that we have to grapple with you know particularly with the wildfires so I think there's a, a sense of curiosity and a sense of going, you know, what's happening? Why do you always vote a certain way? What issues are really important? And maybe that's the disconnect, Esmahan, is what are the actual priorities of Albertans? And are they actually, are they in general different than perhaps the rest of the country or, or perhaps, you know, just different from BC versus, let's say, Saskatchewan? I mean, I don't think that they are, right? Like, I think at the end of the day, the things that we talked about in the election are things that come up in any election, healthcare, education, economy, jobs. But I think one of the stories that really came out of the election for me is at the end of the day, the NDP did well in urban areas and the UCP did well in rural areas of the province. And I think this is something that we've seen in the states, especially that, like that urban-rural divide. But that was really pronounced here. It, it's kind of, I don't know. I mean, it's something that I've really been thinking about because we all live in the same province. And yet we kind of, it's its like, it's almost like there are two competing visions for what this province should be based on whether you live in an urban area and a rural area. And that was confusing to me in some ways because 
you know, I'm someone who paid a lot of attention to what was happening during COVID and what that meant for our healthcare system, for example. And some of the most heartbreaking stories that came out of out of COVID that came out of out of uh, the last few years were was the impact on rural health by some of these governments, by some of the decisions made by the the I guess previous government uh, that has now rolled into the current government. The uh, emergency rooms that have that closed down overnight because doctors are are no longer in the area. The fact that women who are pregnant have to travel so far in certain parts of the province to seek adequate health care. Like, so I don't think that our concerns, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I don't actually think that there are hugely different concerns between urban areas of this province and, and rural areas of this province. I think that, that that probably like we face a lot of similar issues, but there are are, I guess, maybe ways of talking about those issues that appeal to you based on on where you live and, and maybe um, on based on sort of like a bit of like a, a cultural, I, like, I think there is something to be said about this idea that, you know, you're saying, you're saying, Jeremy, that like, you know, there's this perception that like Alberta is really conservative. You know, we tend to elect governments of a certain persuasion and all this stuff. We elected PC governments for 44 years, sure. But some of those PC governments were, I would say, relatively progressive. Like if you look at where Jim Prentice was on Indigenous issues, for example, he was probably more progressive on Indigenous issues than many current sitting premiers across this country. Or if you look at like Alison Redford, she was probably like dead in the center. So I think like there's a lot more nuance to this. And I don't want the story nationally out of this to be like, oh, Alberta, like, and I saw some of this, like Alberta is like you know, the Texas of Canada. Well, that's not true at all, right? Like we're we're actually a really uh, dynamic, young, diverse province. And this was a really close election. And at the end of the day, it could have gone either way. And I'm I can I'm really the first person who can tell you, like in some of these writings, you know, if a hundred more people would have voted one way, we could have had a vastly different outcome. So so I think that we're as a province, we're really changing and we're responding to the challenges that we're seeing around us. There's a great paper by UCalgary political scientist, researcher, Jack Lucas, uh, done with Sophie Borwein from, oh gosh, I can't remember. I want to say University of Winnipeg, but let me just see really quickly. Oh no, Simon Fraser, Simon Fraser. Uh, And it talks about place-based resentment and actually talks about, you know, some of the some of the things that you had said, Esmahan, that there are a lot of similar things that we that the the sides believe in. Um, and actually this paper breaks it out into a uh, urban, suburban, and rural. And it's interesting that rural shows similar resentment, although not as strong towards suburban people as much as they do those who are urbanites and urban being, you know, that that inner area. This was a, a Canada-wide look at things. And really what we're talking about are, are not necessarily, I would say, provincial type issues in a lot of cases, uh, because, you know, some of the higher resentment among sort of the rural and in comparison with suburban and uh, urban is actually lower support for the environment. So, I mean, though that can be translated into a provincial issue, but also immigration. Immigration is a big one uh, for that rural urban sort of thing. And I think where that really plays out in a provincial election and what we've seen in the urban versus 
rural, is that a lot more immigrants are coming into cities, right? And so I think that's where we see it play out in, in some of these vote things. So uh, I did a piece on this a while back. Gosh, when was this? Uh, uh, last August. So a year ago on, on the place-based resentment. Um, you can check it out at livewirecalgary.com. But I want to go back to the impact on, on Calgary. And I think Calgary is well represented in cabinet. But I think that there's a real concern that there will be a lot of initiatives put out for rural communities at the expense of urban areas with this current government. They need to make sure that they appease those folks who supported them, while still, of course, maintaining at least some of the support for, for the urban or suburban candidates who won in some of these cities. Uh, but I think as far as Calgary and, and perhaps Edmonton are concerned, maybe not so much Edmonton, but Calgary, I don't know that the that the split or the takeover by the NDP will actually, and Esma, don't hate me for saying this, but I don't think it actually benefits Calgary because it wasn't enough of the seats in in Calgary were taken by the NDP, I think if there was a bigger share and the government was a little bit closer, I think that that there would be a lot more sway from from Calgary. But I think having it split the way it was, my concern, just again as an outsider, would be that there might be something more for Calgary here. But I think overall, uh, I don't want to say retribution, but there might be retribution for for not voting in more UCP candidates. It's possible that there would be retribution, but I think at the end of the day, you know, the one of the things you kind of say in politics is like, oh, the re-election campaign starts now on both sides. I would assume that the next UCP government would want more seats in Calgary, right? Because Calgary is traditionally in some ways like their seat of power. The kind of coalition that they have going on right now is precarious. I mean, you know, take back Alberta's role in the election is something that uh, I think we're seeing a lot of news about. I mean, it was interesting. The president of Take Back Alberta, David Parker, is now like directly challenging the president of the UCP, Cynthia Moore, in a way that's pretty disturbing. So I think like the party that is our government is not as stable as you would think a government would a, a party would be when when they have won government. They're still competing. I think visions for what the party should be, the base of the party, yes, is the rural Alberta, but at the same time, a lot of the money, a lot of, you know, donations, a lot of credibility for the UCP comes from speaking about the economy. And that means downtown Calgary and corporate Calgary. And I can tell you with certainty that a lot of those folks voted for the NDP. And that's reflected in the election results that we saw. So I think that there has to be some winning over of corporate Calgary. But to do that, you have to make them feel like it's not an extreme party, um, which puts you at odds then with Take Back Alberta, who is advocating for that more extremely extreme uh, sort of party. So it's like a weird, the, the party has this like weird tension going on right now. And they have a convention in the fall, which is when, um, you know, I think Carrie Tate reported on this, that we'll see a sort of uh, attempted coup of the UCP board. 
and I and I think at that point, you know, then that's when the premier's office kind of has to be like, okay, like, well, who are we as a party? And, you know, one of the reasons Danielle Smith won was because over the course of the campaign, she was able to keep herself very disciplined on message and ensured that she didn't go into that more extreme, you know, more, more into that like extreme side of sometimes the things that she says and uh, the stuff that kind of like feeds her base. So I don't know. I I think that I do think that she probably, you know, as they're like looking at their map for the next election, they want to win over more seats here. They That means that they they need to get back uh, corporate Calgary on side and they need to do more of that. I, I mean, I didn't go to her speech at the chamber, but I heard that she was very, you know, sedate and sort of kind of continued that campaign persona, which to me indicates that they are trying to appeal to people here. So I don't know. I'm not sure. Well, we're going to move on from the election to sports. And uh, there's a lot going on here in Calgary. There is the arena deal. There's a new arena deal uh, that happened, I think, just when the just before the provincial election. Uh, we have a new Calgary basketball team that is almost, I think, halfway through its home games. We are the, I think, preferred city now for the Commonwealth Games. Um, should we put in a bid? their conversation around the field house is still ongoing. So let's start with the arena because I am I am very curious, Jeremy and Darren. I was shocked by the 15 to 0 vote in favor of the deal. Did not think we would see that much unanimity over over this deal and now it is a deal that is getting a lot of scrutiny and kind of is coming back uh in different ways. So uh what do you guys think about that? Maybe it's enough for Taylor Swift to swing by Canada. <laughs> the whole country was snubbed by Taylor Swift. The whole country. Yeah. Thanks, Taylor. I, you know what? I guess I can chime in because I've had a number of conversations with counselors asking them straight up. I mean, why did you why did you vote for this? I mean, you want to be a data-driven council. And the data around the economics of an arena, and, and I want to be very specific about an arena building itself, they just aren't there. They, it's not there as a catalyst. It's not there as a, like any sort of economic driver. Um, but I think what was told to me was what makes this deal so good is that nobody's really happy. Even from what I understand, even Calgary Sport and Entertainment isn't entirely thrilled with how this this deal is is coming together in one particular conversation i had because a lot of conversation has been about well why don't we get a ticket tax why isn't there this why isn't there that and the 17 million dollars i i believe it is that we'll get annually for 30 some odd years is actually from what this member of council told me is actually more than what we would generate through a ticket tax. It's more than what we would generate through through sponsorship or naming rights. So when you take that 17 million plus the addition of 1% compounded annually over 30 years, I think by the end we're paying, the Calgary Sports and Entertainment is paying somewhere in the neighborhood of $23 million. 
So by the end of it, when you own the building and then you lease it out, we're actually ending up making more money. The other aspect to this that I think is is being lost is in the land deal. And yeah, a lot of people are like, oh, we're giving Calgary Sports and Entertainment or whoever this first right of refusal on the land. When you do a CRL, a community revitalization levy, quite often what happens is a displacement effect. And that means that different businesses come from other parts of the city to come into the CRL area when there is something like an arena built. But what the land deal does is it actually ensures, because presumably there's going to be some sort of a hotel, I don't know, maybe maybe um, some other sort of entertainment-y or touristy type of venue, that's actually all going to be new money into the CRL. So while there will be some displacement, I think when we're talking about I, I don't even know the value of of property in that area specifically, but when you put a big building on it, presumably there's going to be much more tax base. That typically doesn't happen in the case of uh, CRL or or tax incremental financing, what, whatever you call it. The third thing I will say about this, and again, this was told to me by by various counselors. Should the province come through with their $300 million in infrastructure, that is money that under the old deal, the city of Calgary would have had to pay out of pocket. So not only would we had to have put in our $300 million for the arena, the actual building, which, you know, you can love that or hate it, but we also would have had to put in hundreds of millions of dollars over the course of whatever, five or 10 years to upgrade the infrastructure in that area at the cost of the city and as a byproduct of that through taxpayers. So the taxpayers would have had to pay a little bit more. So there's a lot of elements of this that, yeah, we maybe don't love giving an arena to to billionaire owners. I get it. Uh, I think, you know, if you want an arena, pay for it yourself. But there, it's this was a real trade-off, a real compromise of things, not to mention the fact that there's a reputational risk uh, of not having a world-class arena in a city that touts itself as world-class. And some of the entertainment and cultural district that we're trying to develop it all has to work together. The downtown vibrancy, the East Village vibrancy, the Victoria Park. I think when you put all of these things together, no one is completely thrilled with the deal. No one hates the deal. And that's probably a really good place to be. And I like those points, Darren, that you touched on, because that's more the some of the points that you talk about later are beyond data driven, right? Data only gets us so far, you know, you... <laughs> You all, you also kind of aligned the green line to to accommodate for the the arena as well. So to to not to 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 say no, you're not doing that. It's going to be a a challenge there, and as well, you know, Canada is a a hockey country. I mean, too, I could foresee a a, a big backlash should the Flames go. Well, we're just going to move somewhere else, right? It's just not feasible for us that that would that would cause um 
<laughs> undue stress on counselors who may or may not want to be uh, reelected, you know, next time round. So, you know, I, I and I, the, the point here I'm trying to make is, yes, there's the data driven side, but there's also all these intangibles that we can't really put into numbers until you see the whole picture. One of the things that was said to me, and this was by somebody who I would have thought would be opposed to the agreement. Actually, this came from from two people. And they said, just wait 10 years. Calgarians today can't see the benefit that this will have 10 to 15 years from now. And that's really, really difficult for people to wrap their heads around. We, we, we see the big money today, but we're not seeing what it does for the city 15 years from now. And, and I think that that really hit me because if they see it, and these are folks who, when we're talking back and forth, don't really give me the company line all the time. Um, these are people who, who I, I get the impression actually believe that this is something that will be looked at as a fabulous, monumental decision for the city 10 years from now. I guess like my response to that would be like, well, like if people aren't seeing this great vision, it's because you haven't communicated it to them. And that is a big problem. And you kind of have to own that. Uh, and I think going back to our first segment, when you vote in an arena and the, the perception is always going to be, okay, like we're putting all these public dollars in subsidizing something that there are all these like private billionaires who who could really afford to do this. And this is how arenas are now being done in the States. And there are all these arguments about how this is no longer the model. And, you know, to your point, Jeremy, will the flames leave or not? Well, a lot of people are like, well, let's call that bluff and see, and who knows how it might go. When you're putting all of these public dollars in something, you have to articulate the public benefit properly. And I haven't heard a good articulation of the public benefit yet. And I, I am actually not inclined to not think that there is one because, you know, I might not be a person that goes to hockey games, but I would like to see Taylor Swift and uh, not have to go to the, not have to go to the States or I would like to go see Beyonce in concert. OK, these are things I would like to do uh, and I can I can own that. But I just think that good articulation of the public benefit hasn't been made and I think the other thing, too, is that the problem with the deal and the way that it happened was like city council allowed themselves to become sort of like collateral in the provincial election. Right. And they're really lucky that at the end of the day, the arena wasn't the reason that the, the election swung one way or the other. And I still don't understand why that announcement. I mean, I understand why Danielle Smith wanted the announcement at that time. I don't understand why the city um, allowed that to happen, though, or why they participated in that and why, because they made themselves vulnerable to this, like, what are the de what are the details of the deal? And they kind of now have put themselves in a situation where they have like enemies on both sides, so to speak, right? Like I thought one of the one of the strongest voices out of this whole discussion, frankly, was Jeremy Farkas, right? Who was kind of like, well, this was the deal that, you know, that I was presented and and this deal doesn't even meet those standards. And I think he did a good job, I think, of poking some holes in it. So I don't know. I think politically, I found the timing to be like really terrible. And then now all these decisions that they're going to make are going to be measured against the arena. So again, going back to that housing segment, okay, well, you can give billionaires hundreds of billions of dollars 
but we can't vote so that people who are literally struggling to keep a roof over their heads can have housing, you know, like we're not thinking about issues like that. And I think that for the next year or so, or like those types of decisions are always going to be measured against that. And it's always going to be like, well, you all voted for this 15 to zero. So what does that mean in the context of this? Or what does that mean in the context of that? So I think it was a really, I don't know, a really interesting political calculation. It was. And I think that, you. I mean, first of all, your point is bang on. The communication of this has been uh, terrible. And you know what? They, they've done it with the, the Commonwealth Games. They did it with the Olympic bid before that. And I, the, the mayor's even said as much is that city admin or the, the bid co or whoever have done a terrible job of saying that there's public benefit. And um, I actually spoke with uh, economist Moshe Lander, I believe Concordia University, and he said that's the biggest failure of any of these projects is the inability of governments or bid codes or whatever to get away from touting it as this big economic boon because it's just not. And instead going, hey, we're going to get $300 million of provincial cash in order to fix up a bunch of these areas around here. We're going to get a couple of extra buildings because we can't use this land right now. So we're going to get a couple of extra buildings that are going to build to the tax base. So you're right. I wanted to address the idea that we're comparing housing affordability with the arena though. And I think we got to be careful of doing that because if there's one thing that I've realized in covering City Hall is that all of these things are directly or indirectly related. And I think, for example, if we build the arena, if we get a little bit more tax uplift, if it adds to the vibrancy and the attractiveness of the downtown, then the downtown property value increases again, and it takes away that property tax burden on the businesses that are outside of that area, which perhaps they can hire more people, perhaps they can do this, that, the other thing. But it also lessens the burden, which City of Calgary has moved that tax burden over to over to residential properties in the past few years. It also lessens the impact of that property tax burden when we have a higher value in the downtown area. So I, I've I've really simplified that equation there, but I think that we've that we've got to be careful of this either or sort of mentality. And well, we should be spending $300 million on affordable housing versus $300 million on this. If you're talking about true city building, you have to be able to look at the bigger picture and not just each issue in singularity. And I think this city council, while not perfect, is getting better at doing that. And I think this is just one of those examples. It's the same thing with the multi-sport field house. You know, in order to be that, you know, top 10 greatest places in the in the world to live, you need to have sports facilities. You need to have recreation facilities. That's one of the areas that we went down substantially in the last uh, Economist Intelligence Unit report. But I, but by the same token, Esmahan, why are we spending a hundred million dollars on a multi-sport field house 
when we should be spending it on affordable housing. And again, so that's why I think it's a little bit of a dangerous road to go down um, when we start saying, well, why this and not this? And the only differentiator there is one has a billionaire or two operating the franchise um, versus one that would be operated by the city. Yeah, I take your point. But at the same time, I do think like at the end of the day, what you- what ties us all together, the city building aspect that you're talking about, is that like clear articulation of like, how does this all, okay, then how does this all benefit the city? And what is this, the overall public benefit of each of these projects individually? And how do they tie, how do they tie into a broader vision for the city? Right. And I think it's hard to make that articulation of like built city building when you are voting things down, like housing, because that is a crucial part of city building. And if you can't get all the ducks and all your ducks in a row around it, and the only ducks you're getting in the row are are the one that like has this like very clear, like, you know, sort of populist argument against it, then it almost, it's like, I think sometimes people forget there's a difference between like what your intentions are and how things are perceived politically. It could be the intent that we want all these great projects to go forward we want to go back up in rankings in terms of livable cities and we want to attract all these people to come here and you want to be this like really cutting edge city which is like I think things that all of us on this podcast agree on at least right but like you have to consider how things look when you're doing these votes right and if again if 15 people are voting for an arena but housing is split like what does that tell us about like whose public benefit matters in the city and it, like like I said, I, I, the intention could be very different, but the perception is not great. <laughs> and so that is unfortunately like the reality of politics, I think. Oh, if there was ever a, a time when, you know, Darren, you're talking about, you know, terrible communication, it was just council. Should have been 15-0 for both votes. I think that's what it came down to, right? And that first one wasn't even like, okay, it's going to affect immediately. We have to consult a little bit more. So I think I think that's the point that Asmahan was trying to drive at is that that, that intention. They're, they're not as politically savvy as I think they they think they are right now. They, they still have a lot of uh, uh, learning to do. I want to just quickly touch on the Commonwealth Games here only because only because lawn bowling is one of the activities that happens during the Commonwealth Games. So I'm curious, I believe this is a like a pro- province-wide bid rather than like a, a city, uh, which was what based at a, was it Hamilton? Or was, I forget what the, the previous city was. And then they kind of backed out and they said no. Yeah, it's province-wide, uh, including the Sutina Nation as well, because they've got some great facilities out on the Sutina Nation land. So yeah, the intention is for it to be, uh, we're going to get all the high profile sports here in Calgary and we'll leave lawn bowling for Edmonton. Ooh. Get out of here. <laughs> but it's it's interesting, you know, like out in Langford, you could see some of the facilities that were built when they had the the Commonwealth Games in, in Victoria, like all that infrastructure, you know, when we talk about city building is is the legacy of that. So similar to the Olympics in 88, there's going to be a legacy of, you know, either upgrades, renovations, or even new facilities that if those on the pro side can do well in terms of communication, we can see the actual tangible benefits of that down the road with those facilities built. Now, there was also this one line item and 
Darren, maybe you can clarify. Somebody was asking if they could separate the bid from the field house as a, an important point. And I'm, I was curious why it was like, they, they didn't want to tie it to, they, they still wanted both to move ahead. I assume that would be, have, have been the intent. Yeah, I think they they want the field house to move ahead, regardless of what happens with the Commonwealth Games, uh, primarily because we've already got the, the, the money set aside. Uh, the issue, of course, is we may not get money from the province or the feds without a games bid. We're so reliant on like that federal and provincial piece all the time. Um, whether it's a good or bad thing, I just uh, I just find that very curious. It's we're we're always beholden to to this funding, which you know kind of kind of begs the question: then how far can we do city building without working with 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 the other levels of government in tandem in order to get stuff done? It's it sucks. I I mean that's yeah that's one way to look at it. The other way, and this is this the city spun line would be leveraging public dollars, right? You know, um, we're investing a hundred million to get two hundred million out of other orders of government. And, and so to the city building end, you know, that would be, that would be what they're looking at because I don't think that a field house would be possible if the city were to have to pay for it on its own. As always, thank you so much for joining us. Um, before we say goodbye, I want to give it to I want to throw it over to Darren to do a little bit of uh, a promo. Yeah, you know, and more so now than ever. I mean, of course, we're always welcoming new members and whatnot, but the state of Canadian media is continually eroding, and more and more people are starting to recognize how important it is to support local independent operations like ours. So if you can, here's the pitch. If you want to protect local news, if you want to protect that information that helps tell you about your city, then why don't you join as a member? Uh, you can do it at patreon.com slash livewirecalgary. Or if you just want to make a one-time contribution, you can do it on the members tab at livewirecalgary.com. We are pushing for 500 members. And I can tell you that we have seen with all of this thing that's gone on in the Canadian media landscape, we have seen a steady increase in the number of new members who are joining up. So really good sign. People are really starting to see that there's value in making sure that we have a steady, trusted local news source. Uh, well, I know I've been a subscriber uh, forever and it is well worth my money. So we are back to talking about municipal politics. And if you want to weigh in, uh, there's a lot of ways that you can do that, including by following us on Twitter and sharing your comments with us, however long Twitter may last in this day and age. Uh, Darren. And I can only see about 600 of your tweets. So I'm just saying, like, um, <laughs> keep it to the point. And hopefully <laughs> you can see my response within your 600 tweet rate limit. Yeah, yeah. No more long threads is, I think, the like the new thing. Please say it in one tweet or don't say it. You can follow Darren. He's at livewire underscore DK. Jeremy is at JZ from Calgary. And I'm at Asmahan YYC. We do want to hear from you. 
Well, thank you for joining us and uh, we will be back. And this time it's not going to take us a few months. So tweet us your story ideas. Let us know what you want to hear about and you'll hear from us over the summer. Thanks everyone. Thanks everyone.